the love that looks on tempests, the Windsor love. Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque podcast. On this episode of our Royal Valentine series, we're focusing on the Windsor couples. And to help us understand the question, how did all these couples stay together for so long? We've enlisted Catherine Curzon, a great friend of the podcast. Let's take a look at our first couple, Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. Elizabeth and Philip, did they know each other from childhood? How did they meet? Yeah, again, they'd met a couple of times, but obviously there was childhood, you know. They Mm. met again in um, 1939 when Elizabeth was 13 and she went to the Royal Naval College in Dartmouth on a kind of official tour and they were shown around by a naval cadet called Philip. And apparently she just fell in love, like there and there. (laughs) With this dashing naval cadet and um she wrote to him she kept they wrote to each other and from that moment on she was never going to marry anyone else she wanted to marry him and happily it happened how were the families because philip comes from quite a hard background compared to elizabeth the families actually were okay about it i think because elizabeth's family because they had had a really happy marriage. They were having a really happy marriage and they'd married for love. And I think obviously that when you've married for that, you it's probably quite a wrench to say to someone in your family, uh, no, sorry, we're going to find you a spouse. The doubts came from people within England, in the government particularly. They said, you know, Philip has little money. His family have got some unsavoury connections as we know they married people who had and they were Nazi sympathisers themselves not Philip but some members of his family and couldn't we find someone better but rather wonderfully um, Elizabeth basically said no we're not finding anyone better because this is who I want Um, and I think that you start to see because you know I think we start to know that Elizabeth II was pretty strong personality Mm -hmm. so you start to see that really early on when she just, there was no other discussion of anyone else from pretty much the age of 13. She was marrying Philip and he was really happy about that. He had no problems. And obviously he had to make some sacrifices. He changed his name to take his mother's name because it was more British. It's Mountbatten. He renounced his Greek and Danish titles and gave up what he, you know, you know that you're going to be giving up a lot. You're going to gain a lot, but you're going to give up a lot in terms of what you can do. Because I, I think he loved her too. I, I think it's one of those marriages where it was just kind of like, as my husband would say, lightning in a bottle at the right time. So they, when they got married, Elizabeth wasn't on the throne. So what was life before the throne like for them? When they got married, it was a hugely popular wedding. It sort of really captured the mood of the public who were just tired out of war. And, and they really liked this young princess. She was a kind of breath of fresh air. So they they got married and Elizabeth had saved up clothing coupons to pay for her wedding dress and the public started sending them in and they had to send them all back because it was actually illegal to transfer coupons to someone else. So they all got sent back and she got married and they went off to live in Malta where Prince Philip was stationed and they lived actually a pretty normal sort of military husband and wife life. They were really engaged with the um, naval community out there it was basically like young newlyweds that they didn't really live that different a life to anyone else that was out there. Um, obviously, that changed quite quickly because she succeeded to the throne much sooner than anyone had expected. But it was pretty much, um, it was, you know, it was not a normal life, but it was a normal upper class military life. It was pretty free and easy. And um, I think they both said that they really enjoyed it, which I think you can understand given 
how restricted things became. Yeah. When when did the kids come along and how did they take to parenthood? Um, the kids came along quite early in the marriage. And this is where we start to see the sort of royal side of it because while they were in Malta, Charles and Anne, who were the first two kids, didn't go to Malta. They actually stayed in England under the care of their nannies. It's an interesting one because if you look at other people that were stationed out there at the time, there was a divide in the classes. So there were actually other people where children would be with nannies in England or obviously older children would be in boarding school. Hmm. But it was just seen as not kind of the done thing. It was not really appropriate to take your children with you. Um, And obviously they could afford and would afford to keep them in England. So whether that later laid the groundwork for these sort of, you know, rumoured issues between the parents and the children that went on who knows but it was certainly you know that was upper class life at the time your children were sort of with the nanny or at school and that's exactly what happened but unusually they were in Malta while that was going on so they get the throne and how does their relationship change because she becomes definitely the power in the relationship yeah, she did. I mean, I think the thing that we have to remember is that when they married, they knew it was coming. Mm. So um, not to sort of go into the crown too much, but the crown made great weather of, oh, it was a huge wrench of this and that. Mm. She wanted to be a normal, well, they knew that wouldn't happen. So they had plenty of time to repair. And we have to remember as well that Philip was from a royal background. So he had um, grown up steeped in royal protocol. His background was, as you rightly said, very unsettled, mm. but it was a royal background. So he was someone who would have understood about protocol and hierarchy and etiquette. I think what's more interesting is the way that that marriage would have subverted more social norms for its era rather than necessarily their particular household So who knows what went on behind closed doors, obviously, but for in that era particularly, a husband to have to be, if you like, subservient to his wife was kind of out there. It just didn't happen. But we know, obviously, that they found an equilibrium and they made it work. Obviously, there's been speculation that there were times when it didn't work, but I think it was a long marriage and sort of find me a long marriage that has not had periods where it's not working so well, you know. (laughs) So they had a really long marriage. Uh, they did have ups and downs that were noted. But do you think because of his royal background that she probably wouldn't have been suited for anybody else? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think it's it's hard to know because she did, she really did love him. So that's mm. a big thing. And it's hard to know if she'd be suited for anyone else when she got the man she wanted. I think his royal background, I don't think there was ever any chance if she hadn't picked him herself, that she would have got anyone without a royal background mm. because she's going to be the queen. Yeah. So we'll never know if the sort of royal marriage mark would have come into play, but I suspect it would have to some degree because that's how things were done then. Not so much now, but I think the sort of key to it, and it's a bit, it's kind of an obvious thing to say, really. The key to it is that they loved each other. And I don't say that in any sentimental way, um, although, you know, what's wrong with being sentimental sometimes, but she wrote to him from the age of 13. So I think we know that she was pretty keen on the guy. <laughs> I mean, I was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio at 13 and I mean, still got my heart a little bit. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yes, Gemma, but you and I are way too old for him now. Far too old for him <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, you are far, far way too old. old. The age limit now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My daughter's far too old for him now, so... <laughs> <laughs> At the end, I think we all know how it ends because it was very recently and there's just no denying the fact that 
she was absolutely heartbroken and I think everybody remembers that scene in funeral with her sitting alone. Do you think she managed to live without him? It's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think we all know people who, I mean, my own grandparents, I, I can't even tell you how many decades have been my book. My granddad died at the age of 89 and my grandma died relatively short time afterwards and she seemed to be doing okay. Hmm. But I think when someone's that much part of your world, it's hard to know, isn't it? But I mean, I've known other couples and my husband has where they've been together for what seems like forever. And then one dies and the other one is just a few months behind. Um, I think, I mean, yes, she she kept going, but I just think I can't imagine the wrench of someone, you know, queen or not, someone that's just been with you for well over half your life, who's just been with you through thick and thin, particularly with you know, some of the challenges they'd had. And as I say, you know, there's immense privilege, but there's also a lot of challenges that go with it. It must just be like losing a part of yourself, you know? And yeah, I think you're right. I think everyone's, I know people who are not monarchist at all and their hearts went out to her as well. And those photos in the chapel, your heart has to go out to it. It must be terrible. It must be, it must have been awful, really must. Yeah. And I think like nowadays, my other half always says this, like her generation were the generation that did stick it out. And mm. I think, as the generations are going on, it's easier to give up in relationships. Yeah, I think so too, too. You're right, that generation, like my grandma and granddad, that's some more mighty ding-dongs. And there's times when she goes shopping and when they were getting older, they both had their faculties, but my granddad was a bit mischievous. So every time she went shopping, he'd ask for some really random thing. And she'd come out and get in the car and be like, oh, I can't stand him, oh, it drives me mad. But, <laughs> you know, they would never dream of not being married. And yeah, I'm not surprised he drove him out because he could be really mysterious. But I think you're right that it wasn't an option. Even though it was mm. an option, it would never have been an option. Especially for royals because they were very against yeah. divorce in that generation. Well, also, you know, head of the Church of England. So yeah, that's kind of hard. That whole, that whole complication too. Yeah. I think you're right yeah. that, that generationally it would have, yeah. Margaret did it, but mm. Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> she was a world of her own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love her. It reminds me of that bit in Downton Abbey where she says, oh, people of our class, we don't go through bad times. We just you know, go somewhere on holiday or go to the country or something. Yeah. <laughs> do you think the fact that they could do that probably saved their marriage? It probably does to some degree. You know, if you've got space. Yeah. Well, I suppose the problem is you can get too much space and then the distance grows. I mean, obviously, there were plenty of rumours about Philip. I think it shows you how much how bad the rumours got that in the 1950s they actually issued a statement saying there's no problem in the royal marriage, which was unheard of at the time. You know, I don't think a little bit of distance probably does any harm. And I think probably also having the money to pursue your hobbies as well, as much as you want, whether it's your horses mm. for Elizabeth or your carriage driving for Philip, I think that probably helps too. And I guess just the things like they, you know, they go on royal tours and they do this and that, yep. that there's probably also an option there that if you are starting to get in each other's pockets in your enormous castle, you might say, well, do you know what? I'll, I'll take this trip or I'll do this. So it probably doesn't do any harm. But I guess then there is the issue that you can have too much distance as well. Yeah. But it obviously it worked for them, however it, they made it work. That's true. Um, in The Crown, we'll go to The Crown. But in The Crown, they do allude to the fact that Elizabeth might have had a little bit of a thing with her horseman. Yeah. Is there any substance to that or that was that highly fictionalised? No, they were... Um, it was um, Porchy, Lord Carnarvon. They were really close friends going back years. 
but there was never any whisper of, well there were little at the time people say oh do you think oh do you think there's a thing there but there was never between them there was never any whisper of that they were just I think they just had this incredible closeness and this shared love of horses and obviously he ran her stables but no I think the crown just wanted to be a kind of land of might have been although it never would have been because she yeah. knew she was be queen there's maybe more substance about Philip and Philip's dalliances but not the queen's no. let's look at our next couple Charles III and Camilla Shand formerly Mrs Parker Bowles also formerly Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall Okay, we're going to Charles and Camilla. I feel like everybody knows how they met, but we have to do it. So how did they meet? (laughs) They were part of the same social set and they were introduced in the early 1970s by mutual friends and they swiftly discovered they had an absolute ton in common. I think quite an odd couple, but there was obviously a bit of a spark because they were crazy about each other fairly quickly. Yeah. Did they ever think about getting married? That's one of those, it depends on whose version of events, Mm. because there's the one version of events that says that Camilla had been expecting a proposal at one point and it didn't come. When Charles went away with the Navy, that she sort of got back with her ex and Princess Anne's ex, Andrew Parker Bowles, and that they started seeing each other again and that's they got married. But then there's another school of thought that said Camilla never expected a proposal. It's one of those things, I think, because it's if you like, it's still going on because obviously yeah. the players are still alive, that there's still quite a lot of varying versions of events. And maybe it's one of those where there's a bit of truth in all of it. Mm-hmm. But she wouldn't have been seen as suitable um, by the royal family because she wasn't as well connected as they would have liked. I was going to say she had a bit of a past. That's not actually true. That sounds awful. But she, they, they, well, they wanted somebody like Diana who had no big no you know that she's known for sort of going out on the social scene having boyfriend yeah. and they didn't mm. want that i think again now obviously that wouldn't happen mm. but as we say it's different times i was gonna say it's a long time ago but it was only a few years before i was born <laughs> so it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> so they get married to other people mm-hmm. when did they start seeing each other again uh, or do you think they never kind of stopped i do think they did stop because i think First, I mean, they both said they stopped. You might say, well, they would say that. But at the same time, it would be a really cold fish who would be getting married and never stopping. Mm-hmm. So I think they stopped for quite a long time when Camilla was first married and when Charles was first married. Obviously, Charles, I think, said that they started seeing each other again towards the sort of like late part of the 80s. But I know there's people that said it was a bit sooner than that. I think they started seeing each other again when it became apparent that the Wales marriage wasn't working. Mm. But I don't think they ever stopped in terms of being good friends. And obviously, is being good friends with your former girlfriend, is there risks inherent in that? Probably. Especially if the sort of like flames never quite gone out. It's one of those things, I don't think there was a continuity. I think there was definitely a break, but I, Mm. I don't think the friendship ever tailed off. And obviously, he continued to think of her as a real confidant and somebody that he could tell anything to. Mm. Which you can understand how to to some wives that might be a little odd, I think. I, I certainly know, well, I know husbands and wives who would find that a little disconcerting. I always think the royal family is a wee bit weird this way, though, because we've seen it with Harry and Meghan. Harry's exes were all at the wedding. They seem to kind of stay in touch with their exes. Yeah, well, Charles as well. Just before his marriage, he sent presents to a lot of his exes. He sent um, little items of jewellery. So he sent Camilla a bracelet, which famously Diana then 
found and interpreted as a lover's gift. Um, But he actually sent little gifts to quite a lot of his exes just to say sort of thank you for being you and no hard feelings. And I think as well, I guess it's it's a nice way to sort of put a full stop and almost go, don't sell your story. Here's a Mm. person, I don't go to the papers. I'm not saying that's what it was. But I think it's also, there's like almost like an old school courtliness to it. Mm. I mean, I don't know, because I've not had any particularly savage breakups. Um, My husband hasn't either. So, but it's funny because he, um, his previous partner, who was long before me, got in touch just after we got married. And she actually just got in touch to say that um, her daughter had had a baby. So just because, you know, he knew her daughter. Mm. And a friend of mine said, oh, you you want to put the lid on that? You want to stop that? And it would never have occurred to me to stop that. Because I was fine with it. And I'd rather somebody have a sort of positive relationship with someone. But obviously then there's the positive relationship and versus that person's your closest confidant and you tell them everything. There's a difference there, I think. Although I'm quite happy with that ex-etiquette, though. I I want a few diamond bracelets. (laughs) I guess the royals, they are a little bit different, as in they're high profile. As you say, they have to keep their exes a little bit sweet. I'm guessing they're all in the same kind of social situation. So, whereas if I break up with somebody, I don't need to speak to their friends again. I have my own friends. Well, one of Charles's exes, of course, was Diana's sister. So... She was at the wedding. She was at the wedding. (laughs) Well, she was already married at that point. But yeah, I know what you mean, because you're going to run into these people. You're going to run into all the time. So, oh God, can you imagine if you're all like angrily texting each other all the time, <laughs> like putting negative statuses on Facebook? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there is something almost like quite old school British society about it as well. Mm. Sort of like, oh, that happened, but we're all friends. It's all good. Yeah. And obviously Charles, which I think we don't really see him like this, but Charles was a bit of a player in the 70s. Charles had a lot of girlfriends. And, you know, obviously um, Mountbatten said to him, sow your oats. So you wild oats, go wild and then marry someone who's going to be a great wife. Hmm. How that turned out. So, yeah, he was a bit of a player, which when you look at King Charles, you're like, well, you don't see it really, do you? But No, no, no. So they've get, both get children from previous relationships when they come back together. How easy do you think it was for them to blend their families? Because it is notoriously hard to blend a family, especially with the how public their relationship is. Yeah, there must have been some challenges. But I think that because there was so much sort of media attention and so much negative stuff as well, that I almost wonder if that had the opposite impact and sort of made the family sort of band together over it. Mm. It's hard to know because, again, it's not something that's been so... When it's been spoken about, they've all gone, oh, it was amazing. Apart yeah. from Prince Harry lately, I believe, has been a bit less complimentary about it. But there must have been challenges. I mean, as you say, in any blended family there are going to be challenges, especially when, you know, it's all mixed up with infidelity. And obviously, um, you know, one of the parties died very young and there must have been a lot of challenges. But I imagine now everybody involved is much older. Um, I think all of the children are parents as well now. And I think that when you've lived a bit more life, you look at your parents with a little bit more forgiveness. Yeah. Maybe you understand the decisions a little bit more. And I think as well, particularly with William and Harry growing up in the royal family, they'll have a unique understanding of the specific challenges to that relationship. Because I'm sure they themselves felt scrutiny when 
choosing a prospective spouse uh, or just I, we know that you know Harry has had all sorts of issues with his relationship with the press that he felt they were very intrusive and William at one point asked the press to back off from Kate Middleton so I think they probably got some sympathy with with the tangles that the press had with them and maybe as they've got older and experienced those tangles themselves that's grown that sympathy I think probably yeah when they get married again, a lot of people were questioning whether they should have been allowed to get married. Or they get married again when they get married to each other. Sorry, a lot of people were questioning whether they should get married. Do you think public opinions changed now? Yeah, I think it had already changed quite a lot by the wedding, to be honest. And I think now, I think firstly, a lot of people now because it's obviously many years later. Mm. I think a lot of people now don't really remember then they were much younger then and they didn't really have that much of a concept i think a lot of people as well sort of recognize that it was probably a, a bit ridiculous anyway that these are grown adults that it all got very tangled and very public and very messy and emotions ran high and everyone had an opinion like i remember my mother and my grandmother and their neighbors and everybody had an opinion <laughs> But yeah, I think now that people are just kind of, I mean, there's always going to be people that aren't happy. But from my experience of what I've heard is the general sense is that most people either don't have an opinion or either way or are like, yeah, cool, you know, you do. Yeah. Obviously, if you look on Twitter, it seems a bit different to that. Yeah. But I guess like if you're going to have a strong opinion, you're always going to have a strong opinion. But yeah, I think most people now sort of believe that you should be free to marry who you want to marry. And I think there's probably more sympathy to that side of it, which is fair enough. Yeah. Do you think they're a true love story? Yeah, I do, actually. I think they are. I don't think there's some great big romance because, I, I you know, Camilla was happy in her marriage. Mm-hmm. Evidently, we know that Charles and Diana's marriage didn't work out. They were just two really mismatched people. Camilla's was probably better for her because it was one she'd chosen herself. They'd had history. There was no pressure. You didn't have every camera in the world looking at you. Mm. But yeah, I do think it is because I think it wouldn't have endured for as long as it did. And it endures now. And I think that they're obviously two super different people. And they've both been quite open about how they have really different philosophies of life. Like we know Charles likes things really quiet and calm. And apparently Camilla is like her house is chaos. And there's always like grandkids running around. And she's like always got the telly on and a fag in her hand. Sounds ideal. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, you know, opposites attract. I will say that me and my husband, we have quite different approaches to a lot of things mm. in life. He's really quiet, keep himself to himself, whereas I'm like, <laughs> like a whirling dervish. But I think sometimes it does work. And I think one can bring the other out a bit more and the other one can ground the one that's sometimes a bit whirling dervishy. But yeah, I think it, it works for them. They seem to work. And I, I read an interview actually where... um I think it was Prince William said that she really makes Charles laugh and that he never laughs as much as when he's with her. And I think that's really important in a relationship. We've seen little episodes of the relationship famously, and it was I think it was spun really badly, to be honest, but just after he became king and he had a bit of a meltdown over the pen situation. Oh, yeah. And you can tell there's real love there, in my opinion, because she calmed him down so beautifully. And I know from my dad, who's aging right now, he gets quite cross quite quickly. And I seen that and I just thought that that's love right there. Cause she knows how to handle them. Yeah, I also believe that it's a great love story because it wouldn't have still been there 
I think it would have fizzled out or what have you. And I just remember the photo of them on their Instagram little avatar. This is not scientific proof, but you know, when they were still Prince of Wales and the Duchess of um, Cornwall and they had their little uh, joint Instagram account. And I just remember the photo of them, you know, hugging and they... Mm -hmm. They weren't young. They were mature, very mature, gray-haired adults. And they're just hugging like they're love-struck teenagers. And they just go, well, and at that point, they may have been married for maybe, I don't know, 15 years or something or less than that. But you think that's longer than he'd been married to Diana, for sure. Mm -hmm. And now it's going kind of that meter is going and going and going. And I just think, yeah, it's just... We love that. I just love that little picture that they had with the. With the I agree, and I hugging. think sometimes I think it's really important what you said as well about them being older because I think sometimes we almost think that that's reserved for young people. Yes. But when you get to a certain age, you don't have that anymore, mm-hmm. and there's something almost a bit like about someone older having a love affair or getting with someone that they love, and it's not. You know why not? Like you don't stop having feelings at fifty. Or no. And I agree with you, and I think. That's been something that has been really nice to see. I really agree with that. And I think it's something that too often, whether in fiction or whatever, that it gets sort of sidelined. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that, you know, guess what? Older people fall in love too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I agree with you. It does seem very genuine to me. It seems like a genuine match to me. Our next couple are the nation's favourites, Prince William and Catherine Middleton, formerly the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, currently Prince and Princess of Wales. Okay, let's go new Will and Kate. Will and Kate. Will and Kate. I think we all know how they met, but just in case anybody listening doesn't know, how did they meet? (laughs) They met at university when they were both in the same halls of residence and both studying art history at St Andrews. So that's how they met. So in The Crown, she is seen as being, well, not her, but her mother is seen as trying to cushion. Is there any truth to this story? That's so funny. I I actually love that. I love that they've gone like full on... um, of like Mama Rose stage mother. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. Well, is there any truth to it? There are some people who say yes. Carol Middleton encouraged Kate to change uni from Edinburgh and encouraged her to choose the same gap year as William. Did she? Don't know. But I think the main thing to remember or that people seem to forget is that William is also autonomous. You can do all the pushing you like. And if he's not interested, he's not going to be interested. Yeah. But I actually really like the idea that she was. (laughs) She was like scheming all the time. Like, yeah, you're going to marry him. (laughs) Like almost like from the off, like you're going to marry him one day. We know she was super ambitious, super driven lady. But as I say, I think ultimately he was empowered to not go out with Kate. (laughs) It's possible. I mean, she did change universities, but lots of people do. Um, There's lots of little coincidences, like she went to study on a course in Florence when he was supposed to go and he didn't go. But it's it's quite a funny thought, isn't it? I don't know if it's true, but it's quite a funny thought. Do you think this has been a bit blown out proportionate? Because when you look at royal marriages, quite a lot of them are meddling mothers and grandmothers and everything else. So do you think that it's really a big deal if she did? No. I don't think it is really because, as I say, ultimately you can only push so far. And it's not like an old school rural marriage where you met their parents and everybody mm-hmm. got together, you know, and in some cases treaties were signed when the kids were six. You know, there was, there, you can only, if you're on your own scheming, there's only so much influence you can have. If it's, if she had a bit of ambition for her, is it that big of a deal? Is it a bit weird, possibly? Is it that big of a deal? Probably not, because mm-hmm. I think lots of parents have ambitions. Probably quite unusual for your ambition <laughs> to be that you're going to marry the heir to the throne. 
But parents have ambitions that they like their kids to fulfil. We'll never know, unfortunately. I'd love to know, though. But yeah, I think ultimately, if it wasn't like an old school arranged marriage, she could only do so much. And then he had to do the rest, if you like. It's not the case where it's Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort deciding that Henry Earl of Richmond and Elizabeth of York must marry because we said so. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or Ernest Augustus and his brother cooking up a marriage between George I and his cousin before they'd ever laid eyes on each other when mm-hmm. one was sort of 10 and the other was whatever, you know, and going, they're going to get married because we're brothers and we don't want to marry it out of the family. It couldn't be that. So, yeah, did she maybe do a little bit of pushing? Potentially. But I think um, her sort of power was very, very limited, even if she did. Yeah, absolutely. Because still to this day, I think Kay and Carol Middleton kind of get the rap for it. The same way that Megan kind of gets the rap for it, or she entrapped Harry, which is absolute rubbish. Harry and William, are they do have their own mind. Yeah, I think that's important. And I think quite often in all sorts of narratives, there is that sort of female entrapment narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does it does a disservice to the women, but to the men as well. You know, I used to work with someone who was firmly of the opinion that if a married man had an affair, that he was blameless because men can't help themselves with women. And that women always carry all of the blame for that situation. That women scheme and cajole and manipulate and men are just wide-eyed innocents, unable to do anything about it, which is it's so old-fashioned and crazy and... Yeah, and it's just, I think it's just narrative we see a lot that if something, there has to be a woman sort of scheming somewhere in the picture. Mm-hmm. And poor little helpless men can't do anything. <laughs> so they did meet in uni and they were a wee bit younger than 25. There was a big period in between that. So what happened that they waited so long? It's another one of those where obviously we don't know for sure. There was some talk, because they split up a couple of times and they got back together both times. There was some school of thought that they'd kind of privately had a conversation that there would be a proposal after he had completed his training with the RAF, which makes sense. And obviously she got that nickname from the tabloid press, Waity Katie, which apparently she hated. We wouldn't think that was that weird if they weren't royal. You know, if somebody met somebody at uni and then waited to get themselves established, get a career, get started before they got married, we'd actually say, oh, you know, well done, that's quite mature. It's kind of like because they're royal, they've got to get married. And it's like, how does that work out in the past? How have we seen really quick marriages, obviously slightly different circumstances, but really quick marriages, not even royal marriages, but people who get meet and get married really quickly, it quite mm-hmm. often goes awry. And I was thinking today, I thought, well, I think they were together for about it's about six years before they got married, something like that, six, seven years. It's not really that long. But I think that, again, it's expectation, isn't it? And the press wants a big wedding and they want something to happen. Probably contributed to the delay by themselves because that amount of pressure, again, on a young couple, one of whom is not has not grown up in the media spotlight and by all accounts found it a little bit much, which can understand that you want to be a little bit, as you were saying, a bit more mature, a little bit older and ready to deal with that. That's a whole lot to deal with. And, you know, if it was 20 years, you know, I used to know someone who had been engaged for 29 years. That's a long engagement. But this isn't that long. Mm. It's just that I think we feel like it's a long time because in royal engagements, we're used to pow, they're engaged because it all goes on behind the scenes 
and suddenly they're engaged. And this is a kind of social media era engagement, mm. um, an internet age engagement. So it's all been played out. We've seen it all. Yeah, I think kudos to them for actually making sure they wanted to be together. They had a couple of splits. They waited. And the, again, this narrative, oh, waity Katie, like, oh, she's waited around. She's waited around. She's determined to marry him. Well, no, she was getting on with her own life and going out with someone. That's the more boring way of reading it, which is just like loads of people. They got together. They graduated. He went off to in the military, not quite off, but he went off to train. She was doing her own thing and they were seeing each other. But it's actually really normal. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think he learned a lot from his parents' mistakes? I think so. And I think that I think his whole family did. But obviously, I, th- I think that how could he not have, you know, because their mistakes were played out in such a horrifically public way, you know, that those sort of transcripts of conversations between both sides and their lovers and that this is stuff that normally the children of a marriage that doesn't work out would never have to see. So I think, yeah, I'm sure that he did. And I'm I'm sure that he probably had an, an awful lot of support as well to make sure that he knew that, because, you know, there was never any hint of meddling that we're going to find him a wife, go and find your own partner. And, and wait your- around, because the, the whole wait thing attributed to them getting to know each other, whether she was good you know, for the job. Yeah. Because Charles exactly. and Diana didn't have that. It was like, yeah, boom, mm-hmm. you're engaged, boom, you're married. Good luck. Yeah. Exactly. In, in any other circumstance, if you met someone and were engaged and married in the space of 12 months, people go, oh, that's really quick. Uh, yeah. In the royal family, we're like, why aren't they married? They've been together five years. It's really weird. But it's not. It's actually just what normal people do. <laughs> Make sure it's it's the right thing to do. It's the right person for you, you know, well done to them for actually doing that because it actually makes a lot of sense. So they do get married and it is kind of a thrusted in our faces as a fairy tale wedding. Is any ready a fairy tale wedding? Mm. Honestly, it's probably it's I, I would say it's it's like a I, I feel like it's a genuine love match. Just because it's it's very easy again, we're back on the sort of female narrative thing. People I know people who said, Oh well, you know. She got a clause into him. And the same stuff said about Harry and Meghan as well. It's like got mm-hmm. a clause into him. But yeah, I think it was. I think probably, you know, they've been married quite a time now, haven't they? Quite a while now. The wedding day, yeah. Was it a fairy tale wedding day? It probably was. Because you get this amazing wedding. And if you know you're in, you're it, you accepted it, you've been together for a long time. You can have this stunning wedding, probably great photos to look back on. <laughs> Has it had its challenges? Oh, I bet it's had its challenges. Oh yes. Has there been any rumours of affairs on either side? There has been. Um, and I, I'm, I don't want to get sued. Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly, there have been suggestions that mm. Prince William may have intrigued with people who shall be nameless. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, there have certainly been rumours. Um, some people seem to think those rumours have a huge amount of weight behind them. Other people say they don't. I don't know. Is it possible? Yes. Is it equally possible that it's all nothing, yes. But if he has, they've obviously worked it out for however works for them. And, you know, if he has, uh, I, I've not heard any rumours about her doing that. But I guess there's lots of relationships that survive it. If it's if it's true, if the allegations are true, yeah. relationships survive those allegations. And if the allegations aren't true, that's still quite a pressure to put on someone to have those allegations flying around. Yeah. But evidently it's it's worked for them, you know, which is good, I think. You know, we, we all like a happy, I think we all like a happy ending. <laughs> and also I think, you know, they're the parents of young children. 
and nobody wishes ill on anybody's marriage. You wish good sense and good behaviour, if you like, and that it will work out. That Because, you know, nobody gets married not wanting it to work out. So they've got three kids. How are they as parents? They make me think that they're kind of trying to go for this sort of like, we're like you kind of narrative. <laughs> when they do their Christmas con, they've got the matching jeans on. And, and it, they really want, and I do understand why, because we've had it sort of put in our faces that the Queen and Prince Philip were distant parents. Charles could be quite distant. And I do understand that they want people to know that they're a, a loving and bonded family and that they're raising their children despite very unusual circumstances. You know, they're royals. But people say that you see them on the school run all the time, that kind of thing. Insofar as you can have a normal childhood and family life in that position, that they're trying to do that. Um, and they obviously really want us to think that and to know that. So it's like, we're just like you. We live in a palace, but other than that, we're really relatable. We're sort of like mum at the school gate and dad doing the school runs. Uh, obviously, lately there's been um, Princess Wales been in hospital. And I know there's been quite a lot of cynicism with people saying, well, why does he need to have time <laughs> to care for her? Which mm. I do kind of understand that. I do understand that. But I think as well, it's I've actually had this conversation lately with my mum because my mum said, and if she hears this, she's going to ring me up. She said, oh, they're people pleasers. They're people pleasers. But I feel like you can't win because if you're not, if you seem aloof and if you don't care what people think, people go, they're taking loads of money and they're living in privilege and we're paying for this. But then they try to be relatable and people go, oh, they want us to think they're just like us, but they're not. Yeah. So it's a bit of a rock and a hard place. And I think it's better to be relatable than to be like, you know, the old kings and sort mm. of like, come and watch you eat your tea. <laughs> like yeah. That. But I, I, I appreciate what they're trying to do. Do they sometimes do it a little bit clumsily? Probably. But I actually quite like that as well. I kind of like it when things are a bit clumsy because that actually is the most relatable thing when it's a bit clumsy. How do you think Will and Kate have managed so far? Especially because I think they're the first royal couple that have had to deal really heavily with social media and media scrutiny. I think they've managed really well. Although I have quite a big Twitter account, I don't do much royal stuff because I was shocked at how divisive it is. Now, the interesting thing is if you tweet something worn by a member of the royal family who is dead, people are fine. Tweet one by somebody who's alive, it's seen as a political position. And I fell foul of this a few months ago. I just tweeted a Dior outfit and I tweet Dior all the time. And then somebody said to me, I didn't think this was a political account. And I had no idea. And then someone else had to explain to me, oh, because Prince Harry's been photographed wearing Dior. So you must be a Prince Harry and Meghan fan. And I was like, dude, I... Who's um, Prince Harry? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it, was, it was a little minor view. And a few people got narking. A couple of people said, I'm going to follow you because you've gone political. I was like, what? It was a little tiny insight. And a friend of mine um, just a couple of weeks ago actually tweeted a picture of Kate and just made a comment about the dress she was wearing. Very, um, said it was a beautiful dress. Oh, my Lord, it went viral. She had Kate stands telling her she was wonderful, and then she had Kate haters calling her all names of the sun. All she said was it was a nice dress. And if that is you as a sort of innocent bystander, I don't blame them for letting someone else manage their socials. Yeah. That the amount of both hero worship and vitriol mm. is mind-boggling. Mm. It to me, I can't really get that worked up on either side. <laughs> They're young people 
they're not probably that young now, but they're, they're young people and compared to me. And social media must be part of their life. And the internet certainly is. So how do you avoid this? You must occasionally see it. And both to be absolutely hero-worshipped and hated, you must have to really switch off from that side of it because you'd never look at it, would you? You'd never Google yourself. God, can you imagine? They probably get given some sort of gist or something, or some sort of brief that doesn't hurt the feelings unless it really, really hurts the feelings so that they're aware. I read that they they all have private Instagram accounts. And I know that obviously, because I used to work in House Commons, so certainly some of the, I can't speak for all, but some of the ministers that I knew what went on, they were given a sort of like press, presses of their press. And if it was good, it was like really thick. And if it was bad, it was like one sheet. Someone would sit down and go through it with them and sort of prepare the message and how it would be presented to turn the message. So you wouldn't actually, and this was long before it was a big, you know, you wouldn't see the criticisms but you would know the gist of the criticisms and how we were going to address mm. So you wouldn't see people telling you that you're awful and you're terrible and you're the worst thing in the world and why don't you just crawl under a rock? But you would be told, people don't like what you're saying. And I think that's probably something that's always gone on. That's why they have press secretaries, why there's always been somebody to give you the flavour of the nation. But it must be much harder to avoid it nowadays. A great thank you to Catherine Curzon for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in and catching this episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Like, subscribe and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque podcast or If It Ain't Baroque history. If you're in London, please join me on one of my walking tours, including the recently launched Royal Love Stories, where we see where these couples lived, loved, married and sometimes died. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and drainoflondon.com. See you next time.